0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.
2: Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 21 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast.
2: After an exhausting, cold, uncomfortable, three-day, 1,200-mile journey from his home in Illinois, when Abraham Lincoln arrived in New York City on Saturday, February twenty-fifth, 1860, there was no one there to greet him. So Lincoln started walking into the bustling city, hauling his trunk himself. But this was not Abraham Lincoln's first visit to New York City. He and his wife Mary had been there three years before, in 1857. But now, even since that visit, he found the place much changed. In fact, in the spring of 1860, the Daily News, one of the city's 174 newspapers, reported, quote, The first impression of a stranger entering New York is that it was built the night before. End quote.
0: In 1860, for someone more used to bucolic Springfield, or even rough-and-tumble Chicago, visiting New York City would have been like entering another world. Over the past 10 years, the city's population had swelled from 515,000 to over 800,000. New York City was now home to 2.5% of America's population. The city had more people than all but 12 of the nation's 34 states. More than 300,000 of New York City's residents were foreign-born. More than half of those immigrants hailed from Ireland. In politics, the city leaned democratic, and because of its lucrative trade with the slaveholding states, the city was openly southern in its sympathies. In 1860 like it is today, New York City was the financial capital of America, and by the eve of the Civil War, northern banks had extended some 200 million dollars in loans and credits to southerners. As the anti-slavery New York Evening Post newspaper observed, quote, "The city of New York belongs almost as much to the south as to the north." End quote.
2: That day in February 1860, after arriving at the Jersey City terminal, as Abraham Lincoln rode the Powell Street Ferry across the Hudson River, he would have seen that row after row of brick buildings, some as tall as five or six stories, rose toward the sky. At 281 feet high, the spire of Trinity Church at Wall Street was the highest point on the city skyline. After stepping ashore and walking eastward, Lincoln would have eventually come to the busy, noisy thoroughfare of Broadway lined with strolling pedestrians and horse-drawn streetcars. Still hauling his trunk himself, Lincoln would have turned north and walked to Astor House, the grand, six-story hotel where he and Mary had stayed in 1857. Checking in, he was given a small room on the ground floor. And so Abraham Lincoln, rising Republican star from rustic Illinois, had arrived in thriving, teeming, awe-inspiring New York City to make the most important speech of his political life. Lincoln was in the city because he knew, as the saying goes, if he could make it there, he could make it anywhere. The
0: 1860 election marked only the Republican Party's second attempt at winning the presidency. As we've talked about previously on the podcast... Abraham Lincoln's loss to Stephen Douglas in their dramatic 1858 Senate race laid the groundwork for Lincoln to become his party's presidential candidate. But it only laid the groundwork because even after those nationally publicized debates with Douglas, Abraham Lincoln was still decidedly in the second tier of Republican presidential hopefuls. The unquestioned frontrunner in the party was William Henry Seward, former governor and sitting U.S. senator from New York
2: but several factors kept Seward from being the Republicans' ideal candidate. The different factions of the relatively new political party were still not solidly united, and filling the top of the ticket with someone like Seward, who carried considerable baggage from past political fights, could potentially cause the shaky Republican alliance to fall apart. And so, there were some movers and shakers among New York Republicans who wanted to seek out an alternative to Seward specifically, a Western alternative. They wanted a candidate who would be perceived as less radical, but not as too conservative. A candidate without a long record for which he could be attacked, but still with extensive experience in politics. Someone most of all, of course, who had taken a firm stand on the party's core belief that slavery should spread no further.
0: Abraham Lincoln was just one of the presidential hopefuls invited to speak in New York City by those rebellious Republicans who wanted to undermine Seward. In the wake of his unsuccessful 1858 Senate race, Lincoln had shrewdly capitalized on his newfound popularity by spending 1859 introducing himself to Republican voters outside of Illinois, Traveling about four thousand miles and delivering over twenty speeches in four states and in the Kansas Territory, Lincoln spoke on behalf of other republican office seekers, but he also never missed an opportunity to slam the current front-runner for the Democratic presidential nomination, that of course being Stephen Douglas.
2: So when Abraham Lincoln received the invitation to speak in Brooklyn at Henry Ward Beecher's Plymouth church, He knew it was a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to impress Eastern political leaders and media heads, and to win over an influential audience that could raise him from the pack of presidential hopefuls and propel him toward the Republican presidential nomination.
0: Just as an aside, Lincoln's original invitation was to speak at Beecher's Church in Brooklyn. He didn't find out until he arrived in New York that the venue had been changed to Cooper Union.
2: Right and probably because the invitation was to Plymouth Church, Lincoln decided that his speech there would not be a political stump speech like his earlier campaign addresses, but rather he would use his appearance at Beecher's church to give more of a historical lecture. However, Lincoln still decided to give the lecture a political twist, since he would construct his speech to be a calm and careful response to Stephen Douglas's oft-repeated claim that America's founding fathers not only expected slavery to spread, but the founders didn't think the federal government had the authority to govern slavery's expansion.
0: Stephen Douglas, Abraham Lincoln's arch-rival, had recently published a 19-page article in the country's most prestigious periodical, Harper's New Monthly Magazine, arguing that the Republicans refused to accept America as the Founding Fathers had created it, divided into free states and slave states and Douglas insisted the Republicans were fostering sectional strife by refusing to acknowledge that popular sovereignty was the proper dividing line between federal and local authority and was the answer to the problem of regulating slavery's expansion.
2: During their famous series of debates in the midst of the 1858 Senate race, Lincoln had protested the idea that when it came to slavery, such a basic moral principle could ever be subjected to a popular vote but now, in preparing for his address at Beecher's church, Lincoln decided he would prove historically what he had long argued politically, that the extension of slavery was wrong. So really, Abraham Lincoln set himself the challenge of approaching the bitterly divisive slavery issue from a new direction, that is, by citing the lessons and precedents of the American past. In the Harper's article, Douglas had insisted without any reference to any evidence, mind you, that the heroes of the Revolution had reserved to the states the right to decide the future of slavery. But Lincoln suspected that if he actually researched the matter, he'd find that Stephen Douglas was wrong.
0: So Lincoln spent long hours actually looking into the lives and opinions of the Founding Fathers regarding the slavery issue. What did they think about the issue both before and after the Constitutional Convention? Did they ever publish their views? Did they ever have the opportunity later on to vote on the issue? Abraham Lincoln's law partner in Springfield, William Herndon, remembered that, quote, no former effort in the line of speechmaking had cost Lincoln so much time and thought as this one, end quote. Herndon went on to recall, quote, he searched through the dusty volumes of congressional proceedings in the state library and dug deeply into political history. He was painstaking and thorough in the study of his subject, end quote.
2: And Lincoln's painstaking research revealed that he'd found the perfect foil to Stephen Douglas's claims. Because Lincoln found that, in fact, a majority of the founding fathers opposed the expansion of slavery into new territories or at least they recognized the federal government's authority to regulate slavery's extension. Lincoln determined that of the 39 signers of the Constitution who had gone on to express an opinion on the issue, 23 had registered votes that showed they believed the federal government had the power to regulate slavery.
0: But even as Lincoln readied himself to journey east, the pressure upon him increased and the stakes grew even higher when six days before his departure, Illinois's most influential Republican newspaper endorsed him for president. So Lincoln was no longer just a presidential hopeful. He was officially in the race. As he left Springfield on Wednesday, February 22nd, Abraham Lincoln must have realized that his entire political future was tied to his ability to charm and impress an audience more sophisticated than any he had ever faced. Fortunately, what Abraham Lincoln lacked in refined manners, he more than made up for in self-confidence.
3: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts.
2: As we mentioned before, when Lincoln arrived in New York on Saturday, February 25th, he discovered that sponsorship of his address had been taken over by the Young Men's Central Republican Union, and without his knowledge, the Young Republicans had moved the venue for his lecture from Beecher's Church in Brooklyn to the Cooper Union in Manhattan. But after arriving at the Astor House... Lincoln was kept busy by visitors and by his sponsors, but he spent as much time as he could revising his address so as to make it more suitable for a general political audience rather than a religious congregation.
0: Lincoln did get to attend Plymouth Church on Sunday morning, and after the service had concluded, Reverend Beecher stepped down from the pulpit to greet his distinguished guest. After that, hundreds of parishioners lined up for the chance to shake Lincoln's hand.
2: When the time finally came for his address at Cooper Union on Monday evening, Abraham Lincoln surely needed every ounce of that self-confidence he possessed, since, just in case he hadn't realized it before, the New York newspapers that day had made it clear that his lecture was really an audition testing his suitability for the nation's highest office.
0: That night, at the magnificent red-brick Cooper Union, about a fourth of the seats in the building's Great Hall were empty, Although tickets for the lecture had been reasonably priced at 25 cents, many New Yorkers that February night obviously chose other forms of entertainment over the much-touted political lecture. But still, the 1,500 in attendance represented, as one journalist put it, quote, the pick and flower of New York culture, end quote.
2: By all accounts, New York High Society was unprepared for their first startling glimpse of Abraham Lincoln, after a gracious introduction by William Cullen Bryant, Lincoln rose from his seat and stepped to the podium. One witness recalled, quote, The first impression of the man from the West did nothing to contradict the expectation of something weird, rough, and uncultivated, the long, ungainly figure upon which hung clothes that, while new for the trip, were evidently the work of an unskilled tailor, The large feet, the clumsy hands, of which the orator seemed to be unduly conscious, the long, gaunt head capped by a shock of hair that seemed not to have been thoroughly brushed out, made a picture which did not fit in with New York's conception of a finished statesman."
0: An audience member noted that, quote, one of the legs of his trousers was up about two inches above his shoe. His hair was disheveled and stuck out like rooster's feathers. His coat was altogether too large for him in back, his arms much longer than his sleeves. End quote.
2: And that voice, that voice, in a harsh, high-pitched tone braced up by an undisguisable, distinctive Midwestern accent, Lincoln started to speak in a discordant frontier twang that must have jolted every listener in the room. One eyewitness remembered his first thought was, quote, "'Old fellow, you won't do.' It's all very well for the Wild West, but this will never go down in New York. End quote.
0: In style, Abraham Lincoln was also an unusual orator. Unlike most others, he seldom gestured when he was speaking. He would typically begin a speech with his hands behind his back, holding his left hand firmly with his right. Nor did Lincoln roam the platform. Someone who witnessed the Lincoln-Douglas debate said Lincoln, quote, stood so motionless while he spoke that a silver dollar could have been laid on the platform between his feet at the beginning, and Lincoln did not move enough to touch it with either foot, End quote. Only after warming to his topic did Lincoln begin to underscore his words with occasional gestures, not with his hands, but with his head, throwing it this way and that with quick jerks. And then when the subject of his address was slavery, observers noted that Lincoln might once or twice in the course of the speech throw both arms upward or bring his hands before him and clench his fists, but such moments were the exception rather than the rule.
2: But that February night at Cooper Union, more than one eyewitness agreed that everyone in the hall, in short order, forgot the ungainly appearance, the shrill voice, the comical awkwardness. Indeed, such matters were quickly forgotten, and instead the audience soon found themselves utterly captivated by Lincoln's simple earnestness and the undeniable sledgehammer logic of his arguments.
0: Some accounts claim that Lincoln, thanking the gathered dignitaries, began his address by saying, Mr. Chairman.
2: Instead of, Mr. Chairman.
0: Right. If his accent did cause him to pronounce it as Chairman, it surely made his New York audience cringe, but there's some debate over whether he actually said that. Be that as it may, we do know that he introduced his address by saying, quote, The facts with which I shall deal this evening are mainly old and familiar, nor is there anything new in the general use I shall make of them. If there shall be any novelty, it will be in the mode of presenting the facts and the inferences and observations following the presentation, end quote. As Harold Holzer points out in his excellent book on the Cooper Union speech, it's important to note that the first two words of Lincoln's address are the facts. Lincoln thereby immediately informs his audience that his speech will be an appeal to the head, not the heart. Lincoln also announces that what he will say will be old and familiar, not anything new. By saying this, Lincoln is cleverly lowering expectations so that the audience will then be wowed by the actual strength and authority behind his arguments.
2: After those opening sentences, Lincoln proceeds to quote Stephen Douglas's assertion that the Founding Fathers understood the slavery question just as well and even better than those Americans who were now wrestling over it. But then, instead of launching into a direct attack on Douglas's statements, Lincoln surprised his audience by himself turning, like Douglas, back to the founding fathers. But in sharp contrast to Stephen Douglas's unfounded assertions, Lincoln unveiled the results of his own painstaking research into the lives and opinions of the founders. And so Abraham Lincoln cleverly used the first part of his address to show his audience that historical study actually supported the power of the federal government to restrict the spread of slavery. Lincoln used his research to demonstrate that the intention of the founders was to see slavery contained and gradually extinguished. Lincoln stated, quote, "...those fathers marked it as an evil not to be extended, but to be tolerated and protected only because of, and so far as, its actual presence among us makes that toleration and protection a necessity." End quote. By opening with this line of attack, Lincoln lays the intellectual foundation for the rest of his address. By shrewdly offering up the historical evidence for his argument, Lincoln immediately claims the intellectual high ground and subtly asserts that everything he says that night will be beyond reproach, beyond criticism.
0: After reciting facts and figures to demolish Stephen Douglas's claims concerning the Founding Fathers and popular sovereignty, Abraham Lincoln then skillfully used a clever rhetorical device to address a few words to Southerners, even though, of course, they were not actually sitting in the audience at Cooper Union that evening. But Lincoln knew, indeed he fully expected, that his words would be printed and reprinted in hundreds of newspapers, and in that way would be spread across the country, and so he used the second section of his speech to address Southerners. By the time of Lincoln's speech, Southern fire eaters had already gone so far as to, to announce that if a Republican was elected president, the union would be dissolved and the fault would be the North's. Lincoln said, quote, That is cool. A highwayman holds a pistol to my ear and mutters through his teeth, stand and deliver or I shall kill you, and then you will be the murderer. End quote.
2: And I think when Lincoln said, that is cool, it was an old-timey way of saying, That is brazen, bold, cheeky. Cheeky? Yeah, it's a word, cheeky.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, so Lincoln insisted that he only wanted to contain slavery where it was, not abolish it outright. He asked the South for patience, peace, and understanding. But he also warned that if disaffection led to disunion, the fault would lie entirely with a hostile and unreasonable South. He said, quote, Wrong as we think slavery is, we can yet afford to let it alone where it is, because that much is due to the necessity arising from its actual presence in the nation."
2: Then, in Part 3, Lincoln turned to his fellow Republicans. He eloquently urged them never to abandon the very anti-slavery principles that form the bedrock of the Republican Party's platform. And then Abraham Lincoln closed his address with some of the most stirring and heartfelt words ever spoken by an American politician. He ended with a plea to his fellow Republicans not to waver in their struggle against what was so obviously a monstrous moral wrong. Quote, Neither let us be slandered from our duty by false accusations against us, not frightened from it by menaces of destruction to the government, nor of dungeons to ourselves. Let us have faith that right makes might, and in that faith, let us to the end dare to do our duty as we understand it. End quote. My gosh, that's good stuff.
0: One eyewitness remembered how the audience in the hall that night quickly forgot the ill-fitting clothes, the awkward appearance, the peculiar voice, and instead they witnessed a remarkable change. Quote, When he spoke, he was transformed before us. His eye kindled, his voice rang, his face shone and seemed to light up the whole assembly as by electric flash. For an hour and more, he held his audience in the hollow of his hand. End quote.
2: One of Lincoln's most eager supporters had felt his heart sink at the inauspicious beginning of the address. But then, to his amazement, this fellow noted that, quote, As he advanced, his quaint but clear voice rang out boldly and distinctly enough for all to hear. His manner was to a New York audience a very strange one, but it was captivating. He held the vast meeting spellbound, and as one by one his oddly expressed but trenchant and convincing arguments confirmed the accuracy of his political conclusions, the House broke out in wild and prolonged enthusiasm. I think I never saw an audience more carried away by an orator, End quote.
0: Another witness said, quote, But pretty soon he began to get into his subject. He straightened up, made regular and graceful gestures. His face lighted as with an inward fire. The whole man was transfigured. Presently, forgetting myself, I was on my feet with the rest, yelling like a wild Indian, cheering this wonderful man. In the close parts of his arguments, you could hear the gentle sizzling of the gas burners. When he reached his climax, the thunders of applause were terrific. Quote.
2: Lincoln's Cooper Union speech in February 1860 transformed him into a viable national contender for the Republican Party's presidential nomination. Cooper Union is really the dramatic story of the awkward Westerner charming the elite Eastern audience. Lincoln succeeded in proving that he was an erudite, thoughtful statesman, not just a talented frontier stump speaker. Lincoln neatly used his Cooper Union address to take on two formidable political opponents, Douglas and Seward, at the same time, Lincoln's painstaking historical research and sledgehammer logic demolished Stephen Douglas and popular sovereignty.
0: And Lincoln's stellar performance in New York City set him up as the principal alternative to Republican frontrunner William H. Seward. Lincoln immediately used his Cooper Union triumph as a launching point for an exhausting but equally rewarding regional tour through New England. And so in both New York City and New England, Lincoln impressed and charmed Eastern audiences.
2: Nor did Lincoln's words at Cooper Union quickly fade from the public's memory. Not only were they immediately reprinted in newspapers, but the address was published in pamphlet form and widely distributed, and it became a major campaign document in the months leading up to the presidential election that fall.
0: And we can't forget the photograph.
2: Yes, Matthew Brady's famous photograph. The one he took earlier that day on February 27th, the day of the speech. A lot of people actually credit this single visual image with having as much impact as the Cooper Union speech itself. We'll put the photograph up on the website, but I'm sure you'll recognize it as soon as you see it. Lincoln is standing, hand on a book, staring at the camera with an intense, statesmanlike gaze. Brady said that Lincoln laughed when he realized the photographer was fussing with his collar in an attempt to hide his long, gawky neck. And indeed, once he had it positioned where he wanted it, Matthew Brady quickly snapped the photograph before the collar could slide back down. And then Matthew Brady did some skillful photoshopping. Well, okay, it was just some creative retouching back in that day, of course. But Brady creatively retouched Lincoln's face, softening the deeply etched lines, erasing the dark circles around the eyes, and the end result was a Lincoln that seemed poised, determined, and, dare I say, almost handsome.
0: Once Lincoln won the Republican nomination three months later, Brady's portrait was endlessly reproduced in all the popular journals and sold by Courier and Ives as a lithograph suitable for display in the family parlor. And so, during the presidential campaign, when candidate Lincoln never left Springfield, the Brady image appeared on his behalf everywhere.
2: In his book on the Cooper Union Address, which, by the way, won the Lincoln Prize, the book won the prize, not the speech, but anyway, in his book on the Cooper Union Speech, Harold Holzer says, quote, "...had Abraham Lincoln failed in New York, few would likely recognize his name or face today." We might not even recognize the country he went on to defend and rededicate. Without Cooper Union, Lincoln might have ended up, at best, as a historical footnote. But Abraham Lincoln succeeded. He rose to the most arduous challenge of his career to that point. Lincoln remade himself in New York on February 27, 1860. It is fair to say that never before or since in American history has a single speech so dramatically catapulted catapulted a candidate toward the White House, end quote.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation.
2: And you probably won't be surprised to find out our recommendation this time is Lincoln at Cooper Union, The Speech That Made Abraham Lincoln President by Harold Holzer. And this is a really outstanding book. Did I mention it won the Lincoln Prize? But anyway, um, you know, I I just can't really recommend it highly enough. It's probably one of my top five favorite Lincoln books.
0: As always, you can find all of our book recommendations on the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com.
2: The music you hear at the beginning and end of every show is from the song Midnight on the Water, and we use it with the permission of Spiritwood Music. You can find the song and other great music by Spiritwood at Amazon and iTunes. All right. As we close, we want to say thanks, you guys, for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next week for the pivotal, momentous, historic presidential election of 1860.
0: Thanks, everyone. Bye. ready. I said I was ready, but I'm not ready.